0: The good hand of the Lord was upon me. That's what Nehemiah says. I love that. I love that Nehemiah, in writing this letter, and really probably this is probably Nehemiah recording his experiences for the king of Persia, explaining for Persian history what had happened. Ezra kind of grabbing this and, and adding it to the, the documentation of how God would begin to rebuild Jerusalem as he promised. I love that as, as Nehemiah does this, knowing that not just believers, but in a sense, unbelievers, those who believe in, a, in, in not the God of Israel, but the God of Persia, would be hearing this, and he wants to make sure that they know, hey, these things happened because the good hand of God was upon me. And we hear this, and we, and we say amen to this, But if we're honest, sometimes we go, well, I wish the good hand of God was upon me. Even as believers, we wonder, okay, how come I don't see God's hand in my life? John Piper said once that God's doing 10,000 things, but we usually see about three of them. What we want to see today with Nehemiah, looking at this section, is we want to see that God is indeed working. What we're praying for, what I've been praying for this week in preparation, is that we, as his people, would see that God is indeed working. We need to see this. We need to have our eyes open to the fact that God is active in our life. God wants to do things in our life. God is doing things in our life. The fact that you're here today is evidence that God is doing something in your life. You say, but John, I'm not a believer Well, yet, (laughs) God's drawing you. You're here for a reason. And we can say on the authority of Scripture that God wants you to know Him. God is working. Nehemiah recognized where God was working. I'm going to give you three basic things today all about how God works. And the first one is this, that God works in our brokenness. If you look back at verse one, Nehemiah starts this section by telling us a time. He says it's the month of Nisan in the twelfth year of or twentieth year, excuse me, of King Artaxerxes. Now I'm not going to try to figure out what that actually means, the exact time. But here's what we do know: we compare this to a date previous in Nehemiah, and we know about four months have of transpired. So it's been four months since Nehemiah heard about Jerusalem, since Hanani his brother came and said. It's looking bad bro the gates are burned with fire the walls are broken down the 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 people around jerusalem are saying so much for their god it's looking pretty bad and we saw didn't we that how nehemiah responded to that when he heard that he fell down and he wept and he mourned he was broken and adam did a great job a couple weeks ago unpacking how he prayed he confessed the sins of his people. He went back to the promises of God and said, "God, you said this would happen. You said your people if they turned from you, they would be led into captivity, but you also said if they turned back to you, you'd restore them." And he prayed that. And the indication we have here, especially because if you look at verse the last verse of chapter 1, you see that when he's praying, he says um where is it? He says in verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And he says what man it is, it's the king because he says I was the king's cupbearer. So you get a sense here that this is not just a prayer that Nehemiah prayed once. We get a sense here that this was the heart of prayer that Nehemiah had over the last four months on his face before god saying god we need you to do something we are in a bad way and think about this think about how tempting it would have been for nehemiah not to pray this way because nehemiah wasn't in jerusalem he wasn't daily facing broken down walls and mockery from neighbors he was at the king's palace a cupbearer a position of honor of wealth, substance, respect. But when he hears what's happening to God's people, his heart is broken and he prays over and over and over for God's mercy. God, please, you said you would restore us. God, please have mercy on your people. God, please, we're confessing we've messed up. This is important because it's, we, we need to, to not give up in prayer especially in seasons of brokenness. Especially when we look around at our circumstances or what's going on in the world and we just think, Lord, what is going on? What's, how, how Things are so bad, Lord. God, you, you're supposed to be good. Why are things so bad, Lord? What's happening? It's important that we continue to cry out for mercy. Specifically, it's important that we continue confessing Our sins. In fact, I think it's important we recognize this. I think one of the reasons we stop praying is because we know when we mess up, don't we? In fact, maybe you're here this morning and last night you blew it big time. You did something you thought you weren't going to do again. Or you again did something you thought you were going to stop doing. You've messed up. You've again neglected a responsibility. Whatever it is, and you know, man... What's the point of me even praying? I have no right to go before God. I've messed up again. And yet we see in Nehemiah's prayer, when things are dark for Jerusalem, what does he do? He continues, four months, seeking God, confessing, these are my sins, these are the sins of your people. What's the Scripture say? The Scripture says this in 1 John chapter 1. I love this because... I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because it's a really great paraphrase, really easy to understand. But I love this because it helps us understand how are we to to relate to God as sinners? He says, if we claim that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So if you are here today and you're going, you know, I don't really think I'm a sinner, you're fooling yourself. (laughs) You're fooling yourself. He says, but if we confess our sins to him, Notice, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that amazing? What a promise. If we confess our sins, if we say about what we've done wrong and we've, what good we've neglected to do, if we say, God, I say the same thing that you say about that, this is a good thing, I haven't done it, this is a bad thing and I keep doing it, God, it's wrong, and I'm worthy of your judgment because of that thing, but I'm trusting in your grace even though I've done that thing, or not done that thing. I'm trusting that you are faithful, and that you are just to forgive me and cleanse me from all wickedness. He goes on to say, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that His word has no place in our hearts. Can you see how John, who's writing this, is wanting us to see that a big part of us relating to God as sinners is recognizing that we're sinners, that we're desperate for grace, that we need God to do something in us, that we don't outgrow that grace. And the darker things are, the darker our circumstances or the world we see around us, the more we need to say, God, I just confess this is wrong. It's worthy of your judgment, but I'm crying out for mercy because I believe, as your word says, you are faithful and you are just. And you're in the business of cleansing. You're in the business of cleansing. So so the thing that we want to learn from Nehemiah is we should continue to confess our sin. Why? Because God is faithful and just. But not only that, we should continue to be asking and thanking God for things because his peace is better than all understanding. What does the Scripture say? Paul says in Philippians, again, New Living Translation, like the way it paraphrases, it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Do you ever feel like your thought processes and your emotions are out of control? You just can't get them in line? Do you ever feel that way? No, I'm British. I never feel that way. <laughs> of course you feel that way. We all feel that way. We all feel like we can't just we can't concentrate or we just feel things we don't want to feel. How do we deal with this? Here's how we deal with it. We keep praying. We go to the God of mercy, no matter how dark things are, and we say, Lord, I just want to say, this is all that I need. I need you to help me change, and I want to thank you for what you've already done that gives me the confidence that you'll continue to work. We pray. Not only that, we don't just continue confessing because he's faithful and just or continue to ask and thank because his peace is better than understanding. And isn't that a great promise, though, too? Isn't that a great promise, an amazing promise? I mean, we, we often we want to know, God, I don't get it. What's going on? And God says, well, sometimes I'm going to tell you, but a lot of times I'm going to give you something better. You're going to just have my peace. All right, Lord, I have no idea what, what you're doing, but I know you are good And that's where my peace is. But also he wants us to continue trusting when we're weak. Why? Because his grace is sufficient. Again, New Living Translation, 2 Corinthians. Paul writes it this way. He says, three times I begged the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh away. And each time God says, my grace is all you need. My work, my power works best in weakness, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. This is important because it's often in the times when we think God has stopped working that we need to push into the Lord and see that, no, God is still working. He's still doing something. Jerusalem's a mess, but God's still working. Nehemiah Nehemiah's wondering, what can I do? But God's still working. God's working. Now this doesn't mean that we kind of walk around happy-go-lucky. Hey, it's cool, God's working, everything's going to work out. No, Nehemiah was sober about his circumstances. Look at the second part of verse 1 where he says, now I had never been sad in his presence. That's the king's presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And so Nehemiah says, I was dreadfully afraid. Why? If you work for the king, the king's word is gold. Whatever he says goes. And it was in, in this day, in, in, when, when Nehemiah was working, it was kind of the common attitude that you, it's a great privilege to be in the king's presence. Therefore, you should always be joyful in the king's presence. And so, you daren't ever show sadness or grief or anything like that. The other issue is if you're looking uncomfortable or sad or nervous and you're a cupbearer, you're someone who has influence, you're someone who gets close to the king, he might be thinking, You're plotting to kill me. It's got to be paranoid. That's why he stays king. Now, we don't know if Nehemiah here is just so overwhelmed with grief that he can't help but show it, or if he decided, that's it, I gotta, this is, I've been praying for four months that God would open the door, and I'm just going to let it show that I'm just grieving over Jerusalem. We don't know if it was on purpose or he, just, he was overflowed with it. Either way, God was in control. And either way, Nehemiah is afraid. He's afraid. One of the mistakes that we make is we make the mistake of thinking that feeling afraid is sin. It's not. If you are afraid of because of the condition of your marriage, the fear is not sin. If you're afraid because you you are in a situation where you have debts that you don't think you can pay, the, the concern itself is not sin see, the, the problem we have is we have this idea that courage is the absence of fear, but it's not. Or maybe even faith is the absence of fear, but it's not. Faith is action in the face of fear. So here's Nehemiah. He's rightly afraid because the king can say off with his head, and that's done. There's no deliberation. There's no jury. It's just done. He's afraid. He's sober about his circumstances. But what does he do? Look at verse 3. And so I said to the king, may the king live forever. Now I don't think this was just kind of a nice phrase to say or this was purely motivated by fear. I honestly believe because of the character of Nehemiah that we see through this book that this is Nehemiah's heart. King, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I want you to live forever. Probably even thinking I want you to know the God of Israel so you know the resurrection and live forever. I want you to live forever. But he makes it clear. He just lets it go. What does he say? Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? It's interesting that he doesn't name Jerusalem. He just says the city that. It's also interesting that he doesn't say my people are being derided Our God's being derided. He doesn't bring that up either. This is where he's being wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, <laughs> Instead, what does he bring up? He brings up something that he knows our Xerxes will have compassion on. My father's tombs are being desecrated because everyone on that day would honor their parents' memory, their ancestors' memory. So he knew that he'd have compassion on that. He's being wise. Now what's interesting is this is a great example of faith. Faith, listen, is demonstrated when we take risk. This is what Nehemiah is doing. He's demonstrating a faith that takes risks. It, we're not really believing if we're not taking risks. I want you to think about. It. Think about. It. If you haven't read the Gospels, go back and read the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—or read even one of the Gospels. You know you're going to see. You're going to see Jesus calling twelve mainly fishermen to do stuff that's radical, to be willing to die for him, their rabbi. Now you might go, "Yeah, okay, I know all that," but that's radical. What would you do if I said, look, do you guys, do you trust me as your pastor? Are you ready to die with me? You'd be like, oh, Colt, weirdo, I'm out of here. And rightly so, by the way. <laughs> but when Jesus does it, he does it because he's saying, this is who I am. I am God the Son. I am God's chosen King, the Messiah. Therefore, I'm calling you to something radical, something risky. He didn't say, but don't worry, you'll never be afraid. <laughs> He expected his disciples to feel fear and to move forward in faith. God expects us to do the same thing. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, said this. He said, faith is living, daring, confidence in God's grace. He said, grace so sure and certain that a man can stake his life on it a thousand times. Faith is not you feeling triumphant, me, Christian, tough, me, do all good things. No, it's ridiculous. It's not becoming a superhero, like a born-again Wolverine or something. That's who I would be, Wolverine, by the way. No, it's not that at all. Here's what it is. What it is is you saying, God, you are worthy to be trusted. Your grace is worthy to be trusted, even when I'm afraid. See, all this is really something that we need to understand, okay? God works in our brokenness. In your weakness, He's working. He's making Himself known. His power works best in your weakness. God's working in your brokenness. You might feel like, man, I, I, if I was to ask you today, hey, are you a Christian? You might go, barely. <laughs> hey, let me tell you something. If you have. If you believe that Jesus is who He said He is, God's only begotten Son, you believe that when He died on the cross, that paid for your sins. You believe that three days later, He rose from the dead, just like He said He did. You believe that He ascended to heaven. If that's where your faith is, even though you feel like you're barely hanging on, guess what? You're just as saved as anybody else. Even in your weakness, God still has you because His grace is sufficient. God's working in your weakness. One of the things that that handicaps us as believers is we think God only works when we're doing well. No, we tend to only recognize God's working when we're doing well. God's even working when we're weak. He's always working. Now, here's the next thing. Not only does God work in our brokenness, but also, listen, God works as the highest authority. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, then the king says to me, what do you request? And so what does Nehemiah do? I pray to the the God of heaven. I want you to think about this for a second. Nehemiah is standing before the king of Persia, the the strongest leader in that whole area of the world. And so what does he do? The king of Persia says, what do you want? He says, I'm praying to the father. He says, I might be before the throne of Persia, but I'm going to go to the throne of grace. I'm going to pray to him. Why is he doing that? Now, I don't think this was like him saying, hold on, king. Dear Jesus, would you help me? I don't think that's what was going on there. It was one of those kind of, you know, help, Lord, prayers. But but let's not lose the context. How was he able to actually uh, turn his heart? Why was it that his affections quickly turned back, his focus quickly turned back to the God of heaven? Why was that? He had spent four months before praying to the God of mercy, for mercy. It was the secret place where he was used to going to be before God that allowed him to say, God, help in that moment, in full confidence that God could help in that moment. And so he prays, God, would you do this? See, what Nehemiah is dependent upon is not Artaxerxes' rule, but God's rule. That's what he's dependent upon. What can God do in the circumstances? What do I need God to do in the circumstances? So last summer, uh, Sarah and I had the privilege of doing two different uh, meetings. One uh, that were kind of outside our, our tribe, outside our circle of churches. One was... We got to do a weekend retreat for Surrey Chapel. Lovely saints. It was a blessing to be with them. Uh, Glorious people. The other was we got to be at this sort of week retreat with the the boards of uh, directors for Care for Children. And I'll, I fully confess that my main motivation for going was because there was a guy, Francis Chan, who was going to be there, who's a well-known preacher, and I was geeking out wanting to meet Francis Chan. That was my, I confess that to you, uh, a sin. <laughs> and so, um, but I, we went there, and we, we had every morning this time of prayer. And it was just this beautiful time of seeking after God, and Sarah and I were so moved by the humble expectancy of these people People from different backgrounds, different countries. And they were expecting God to move, the God of mercy to move. It was a beautiful time as we prayed together. And I was so challenged about, Lord, it's been so long that I've prayed with that kind of expectancy. I find sometimes I'm I'm praying to God, but really in my heart, I'm addressing my prayers to fate. Lord Jesus, would you help this? Father in heaven, would you do this? Whatever happens is going to happen, I guess. Instead of saying, Father, you are this God. You've revealed yourself to be this God. You've made these promises. You've done these things. Lord, would you please, in your mercy, do it again for us? Praying with that kind of expectancy. So I was really convicted. and So I was determined to say, Lord, I want to start believing you for things. But you know how it is. God stirs your heart. You make that commitment. And then things wane over a bit of time, don't they? We've all been there. And so back in, like, say, May... I was beginning to feel uncomfortable the fact that I still didn't really wasn't expecting God to do as much as I think I needed to expect him to do. And we were, um, at the time, uh, our Bible reading plan was in 2 Kings, and we were reading in 2 Kings about, in fact, where's my, hold on. We were reading in in 2 Kings about the story when Israel and Judah are divided, and so the capital of Israel is in Samaria, and Samaria is besieged by a pagan king. And things are getting so bad, there's such a bad famine in Jerusalem, or in, sorry, in Samaria, such a bad famine that people are actually beginning to eat each other's children. It was that bad. And so when a woman comes to the king... Jehu, I think it was, and says, Hey, I have a problem. We ate my child yesterday, and now the woman uh, who, whose child we're supposed to eat today won't, won't cooperate. King, can you please help? And the king decides to blame Elisha, who's the prophet of God at the time. Stinking Elisha, he's always cursing us, he's always pointing out where we're wrong. I'm going to chop off his head. And so he sends a representative to go get Elisha to have his head chopped off. But before the guy can get here, Elisha's prepared. And so what ends up happening when the guy shows up, he, here's what, what, what takes place. It says in 2 Kings 7-2, so an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered uh, the man of God and said, look, if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, how could this thing be? And the thing he's referring to is that Elisha says, look, you think there's famine's bad now? Guess what's gonna happen 24 hours from now, there's gonna be no famine. There's gonna be complete feast." And the officer who represents the king says, how could that be? And he says, uh, "He said, in fact, you will see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Mm. So this happens in about the, I, I read this in about the middle of the week of May the 25th, around there. And I read this, and again, I am so convicted because I'm like, here it is almost a year later, and I'm still hardly expecting God to do anything. And so I'm wrestling with this for a couple days, and Friday the 25th, of May, it's right here in my journal. I'm reading the the Bible reading for that day, and one of them was Psalm 84, and here's what I read in Psalm 84, Psalm 84, 11 and 12, listen. No good thing does he, that's God, withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And I thought, Lord, I have to believe that you can do more Then I see you do, and I have to believe that you can do what I can't do. You can make happen what I can't make happen. So I wrote in my journal. This is Friday, May 25th. I wrote in my journal, okay, Lord, here's what I want, and I made a list of things. I'm not going to tell you them all because some of them are private, but one of them is two church buildings, Lord. I want two church buildings. We need something in, in Golston when we start down there, and we need a base here where we can actually do more than just store stuff and do office work. Now, I've been asking God for a building. In fact, let me be clear. I've been asking God for a free building since we moved here in December of 2004. When we moved here in December 2004, and I was seeking the Lord about what He wants to do. It was just hardly any of us in the small little Bible study just starting. I was praying and saying, God, buildings aren't that important, but you know what? You can give us a building for free. And as I was praying that, I really thought, you know what? God's going to do this. But guess what? Three buildings come and go that are offered to us, and they, don't, they all fall through. And you start thinking, forget it. It's not going to happen. And then God starts dealing with me about expectancy again. So when this comes up, I say, okay, God, here it is. Friday, May 25th, I'm asking you for two church buildings. I need you to do something. I didn't say by the next day. I, wasn't that, I didn't have that much faith. But I said, by next year this time, Lord, can you do these things? So that Friday I go to work, I come back in the afternoon, Sarah says, hey, uh, so-and-so's here, she wants to talk to us about her mom's church. Oh, okay, cool. Her mom's church is closing down. They have a building you might be interested in. Would you like me to put you in contact with the trustees? Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. She goes home, calls the trustee, the trustee uh, sends a message to me asking if I'm interested. I say I'm interested. He sends me another text, hasn't even met me yet, saying, we are ready to sign the building over to you today. Same day. That was May 25th. I was still kind of going, well, okay, I've been down this road a couple times before. We we talked about it as trustees and thought, you know what, this is amazing, but we're not going to tell the congregation, we don't want you guys to be... Horribly disappointed. We're going to pray and see how God works this out. So we went through the process. And lo and behold, as I said two weeks ago, the building is going to be ours. It's in the process now of just doing all the legal paperwork so the building is ours for free. Now, amen, yeah. Now the thing is, I'm sharing this not because it's a big deal about a building, though it's going to be a great thing. I think God's going to use the building. I'm sharing this because Sometimes we get so discouraged, we think, God, are you working? And we think, God, you're supposed to be in charge, and yet things don't seem to be happening. And we don't know what God is doing. We don't know how he's working. He works as the highest authority. His is the highest good. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly with him. Does that mean everything that we think is good we're going to get? No. No. It means even things that we think are good, that even God would say is good, it might not be good for us to have them when when we want them. But anything that's good for us to have that's a good thing, God will give it to us in his good time for his good name to be made known. Do we believe he's at highest authority? Look, you might be in a rubbish Marriage, and you're thinking, I've been praying for this stinking marriage for 20 years. You might have a wayward child. I've been praying for this child since they were born. You may have the worst boss in the world. Talk to my employees, they'll probably say second worst. No, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. But guess what? God says, I'm not withholding any good thing from you. Walk with me. Trust me. Ask me and see what I'll do. I love that when this happens, he as he prays to the Lord and and God does this for him in verse five it says, He says, So I pray to God in heaven, and he says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Now, what we see in this is that Nehemiah obviously has a plan. So that as he's been praying, he's also been planning. He's not just praying and saying, okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. He's praying and saying, Lord, what would you have me do? I, I, I'm, I'm broken about this. What do you want to do with this? How do you want to use me in this? But I also love this, that he submits himself to our exerces. He is saying, okay, you're the king, so if you let me go, I'm, I, this is what I want to do. Now, this is interesting because sometimes we as Christians, because we know Jesus is the highest authority, God's the highest authority, we serve the King and King and Lord of Lords, we can kind of in our heart stick two fingers up at all other authority. We can kind of thumb our nose at all other authority. I've had so many conversations, and I say this with a beam in my own eye, I do admit this, but I have so many conversations with people that just, just you know drive as fast as they possibly can get out between speed cameras you know speed cameras slow down, slow down you know you do this you know or 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 people believers i've known leaders in churches that l- that really basically lie so they don't have to pay so many taxes now vote to have less taxes if that's what's bothering you that's fine but don't lie and it's amazing how we can think we don't need to submit to leaders. And, and I'll tell you, in ministry I've seen this happen. This happened to me. I knew that God was calling me to go to North, from California to North Carolina to Planet Church in 1997, babe, I think it was, 1997? 96 is when we initially asked. And, and God was confirming this with like prophetic words, I'm supposed to go do this. And so I go to my pastor, thinking he's gonna be supportive, and you know what he says? He says, how dare you come into my office and say, I'm 26, I'm going to go plant a church. You know, you need to go humble yourself and figure this out. I walked out of the office thinking, he's lucky I didn't slug him. (laughs) Talking to me that way. And he made me wait a year before he, he said, give me his blessing to go. But you know what was amazing about that? I could have left beforehand. There was no like law that said I couldn't stay. But you know what was amazing about that? In that year, the Lord was teaching me so much about submission and humility and God's timing. Because here's the truth, with God's timing, that, you know what ended up happening? Someone else went to plant a church in the same city I was going to go to and that church took off and it was successful. So by the time I got there, guess what? Those initial people that wanted that kind of church were already somewhere else. You go, well, that's bad news. No, it was great news because what we ended up realizing in hindsight was what God was doing was not go plant a church, but go to the woodshed and learn to get your pride dealt with. Pride that I had no clue was there. I know that sounds crazy, but I didn't know. I really didn't know it was that bad. God's timing was perfect. And often, listen, with things in our life, God is using, just like God was doing with Nehemiah, using the timing of those in authority over him to dictate what he wanted to get done. There's a blessing in submitting even to pagan authorities, guys, because God's working his will in that somehow. God is working as the higher authorities. The Bible says in Proverbs 21.1 that God holds the heart of the king in his hand and turns it like a river any way he wants it to go. Oh, but John, you don't know my boss. There's no way he's responding to God. didn't say he'd respond to God. He said God would turn his heart. And maybe God's turning his heart against you to purify an attitude that God wants to purify in your heart. You see, this is the thing. God is working through in Nehemiah's life, even through this pagan king. Lastly, we've seen God works in our brokenness. God works as the highest authority. And lastly, God works through human efforts. Look at verse 6. So Then the king said to me, The queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? When will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me. And so he said, Okay, here's the time I'll be gone. Again, this shows that Nehemiah has a plan. Not only does he want to rebuild the city, he has an idea about how long it's going to take. He knows what he's going to do, right? This is important. It's important to know we need to not just pray, but plan. But also, we look at verse 7. He's got more things to ask. What does he ask? He says, says, King, could you give me letters uh, that show that basically I have your authority so that when I go into this region that might be dangerous, they know I'm coming in your authority. I need that sort of military uh, protection, you might say. And we'll see later on, of course, God gives, or uh, King Argoxerxes gives this to him. But he also says this. He says in verse 8, hey, can can you send me a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the forest? Asaph is a Hebrew name. So he was probably a Hebrew man who controlled some of the forested areas around Jerusalem that was under control of the Persian Empire. But he says, can you send me letters to him? So he gives me all the, the timber I need, the lumber I need to do these building projects. It's interesting because here he's doing this. He, here, here Nehemiah knows that, that, that God's the one who's in charge, that this is Jerusalem, it's about his name, it's about his glory, but he's not afraid to ask a secular king for help. Interesting, isn't it? I used to work for Youth for Christ years and years ago, uh, mostly part-time and then as a volunteer, but I worked for them, and I was doing a, a booth at a fair for them once, and someone came up, and a Christian brother came up to me, and he says, I want to ask you a question do you think it's right for Christians to be supported by non-Christians financially? And of course, we're at a fair trying to raise awareness of our youth ministry and trying to, you know, hope that turns into support. And so I'm like, uh, because I don't. I think it's wrong. We gotta trust God to be the one who provides. And I'm all, yeah, gotta trust God, amen. And I'm praying, please, Lord, send this man away. And he left. (laughs) Thankfully, he left. The thing is, we look at here in Scripture, is it okay for us to be funded by non-Christian sources? I don't think it forbids it. Does that mean we're going to go begging door to door? No. Does that mean we're going to trust the government to give us the money we need? No. We're going to trust God to give us what we need. But there's a principle here where he, we see Nehemiah thinking, okay, Lord, if you want me to go, you're going to have to give me favor with our exerxes. If you want me to go, you're going to have to have him not just say you can go, but he's going to have to give me letters of recommendation so I don't get beat up or killed by, uh, by the, the, the different nations that are around uh, Jerusalem at this time. And also, Lord, you're going to have to make sure you provide the supplies because if we don't got the supplies, it ain't going to happen. You're going to have to do this, Lord. And what happened? God did it. God gave him everything that he needed. So then what happens? In verse 9, it says, Then I went, on to, into, went to the governors uh, in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letter, and then the king had sent captains of armies and horsemen with me. And we get introduced to these two characters. They're going to come up over and over again on Nehemiah. Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, here's what we know about Samblat. We know a little bit more about him because there's some secular sources that give us some information. He was, in a sense, the governor of Samaria. So even though Samaria used to be the capital of Israel when Israel and Judah split, Israel had gone into captivity hundreds of years before. It was now controlled by the Persian Empire, and he was the guy working for the Persians who was kind of controlling that. He was probably himself a Samaritan himself. Tobiah, we know a little bit less about. His name is Hebrew, which is interesting because Samblat's not a Hebrew name. But Tobiah is a Hebrew name, but he's called an Ammonite. And the Ammonite traditionally were enemies of Israel. But here's what we know we know that these two guys are basically political operatives all around Jerusalem. They're the ones that call the shots. They want Israel to stay, or Jerusalem to stay, weak and vulnerable. And so what happens? When they hear this, it says, they they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. They're like, oh, man, this is bad. We're going to see these are the guys that persecute them. This is important because we're talking about how God works through human efforts, which means it's important for us to plan. It's important for us to organize. Please don't think it's just John being a control freak when I say, please read your emails. Please give us, return your, your paperwork. Please make sure you say when you can work and you can't work. I'm not just being a control freak. Naomi's not just being a control freak. She's doing what I ask her to do to make sure, listen, that we can be organized. We can have a plan. You know why? God uses that. That's my little jab. Take it in love. God wants us to seek. We don't just say, God, would you provide and wait for the money to fall from the sky. He wants us to be intentional. Okay, what, what resources do we have now? When do we ask? When do we not ask? How do we knock on doors? Where do we get grants from? Where do we not get grants from? We're praying through this stuff, saying, Lord, what would you have us do? We want to seek provision. God uses that plan. But listen, as God uses that plan, it doesn't mean things go easy. Because there's always resistance to what God's plan is. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm I'm just using too many human efforts. That's why it's all going pear-shaped. That can be the case, but that's not always the case. The truth is, when we're doing what God's calling us to do and we're working towards something that God's called us to do, when we're about his business of restoring his people, when we're doing that, guess what happens? There's resistance. Interesting thing about persecution. The Bible says anyone who wants to follow Jesus is going to experience persecution. It says uh, two Timothy 3.12, yes, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He didn't even say all who live godly, all just who want to. (laughs) Those who desire to follow after Jesus are going to suffer persecution. Why? Because to follow after Jesus, to live godly, is to obey him as the highest authority. It's to say, Lord, you aren't just the highest authority in some kind of idea or principle. That means I'm called to submit myself to you. Sammy made reference today of building our house on the rock. And when Jesus talks about that and uses that parable, he says the one who built his house on sand is the one who hears what God says but doesn't do it. And the one who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears what Christ says and does it. Human responsibility. So it's as we do what God calls us to, as we obey, that's where stability comes in. We, we, we learn to say, yes, God, you are the rock that I can build my house life on. I can trust you. And yet with that, there's still going to be persecution. But there's something that you, you need to see in this. Okay? Because God is working in our human experience. God is working through our human efforts in the darkest of times. Listen to the way Paul talks about this idea of persecution and God working in Romans chapter 8. I'll close with this. Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. "...shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword..." Sounds like the evening news, doesn't it? "...as it is written, for your sake..." He's quoting Psalm 40 here, Paul is. He says, "...for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for slaughter." In other words, listen... What the psalmist is saying in Psalm 40, what Paul is saying in quoting Psalm 40 is this. As God's people, God leads us into difficult times and calls us to still obey him in difficult times because that's how he's working. He's doing something glorious in us and through us through those difficult times. As we go through Nehemiah, we're going to go, wow, God did something radical. In fact, it, God does something speedy. They got the, we'll see they got the walls rebuilt and just breakneck speed. But the thing we need to understand was it was never easy. It always came with its difficulties. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he's not talking about your life is easy, your burden is light. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What he means is, you stay yoked to me, and I'll do the heavy lifting. But it doesn't mean we're never going to feel the pull on our shoulders. It doesn't mean we're never going to feel the weight of what's there. No, that is how God is working in us, how he's strengthening us, how he's getting his work done as, as we go through these difficult times as people come against us. Interesting, with Sam, Balat, and Tobiah, they're probably politically motivated. Most persecution that we read about in Scripture really most persecution that we see in history is politically motivated. Don't picture in your mind, you know, a group of people kind of wringing their hands going, oh, we hate Christians, how can we destroy Christians? Usually what they're going is, we have our agenda, how we want to rule and what we want done, and this Christianity stuff gets in the way. That's usually what happens. So it's usually politically motivated, but it's always, listen, demonically inspired. Because it's the enemy of our souls who does not want to see restoration happen. Which is why the Bible commands us to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, he'll flee. He didn't say submit ourselves to God and the devil will never bother you. He says, no, submit yourself to God. And resist the devil, because as soon as you submit yourself to God, what's going to happen? Jesus say, "Lord, I'm committed to this restoration project that you want to do in my life in the life of your people. You know what happens? The enemy comes against. And we have to say, "Lord, help us to push through. Help us to trust you." I am excited about the building I am. I'm so blessed the way the Lord's done this. I'm excited about how God wants to use the building. But you know, when I said to you a few weeks ago when we started Nehemiah, Nehemiah, is not about a building project. It's true. It's not about a building. It's about him rebuilding us. It's about God restoring his people back to where they need to be. And he, he's working even now, guys, in our brokenness. He's working even now as the, still the highest authority. And he's working through our efforts as we submit ourselves to him. Amen.